Good morning. <laughs> so Rob has so graciously asked me to take a stab in this venue. Um, so I'm just excited to have a conversation with you this morning um, about uh, this next section of Romans 8. We're, we're kind of heading into like the beginning of the end of what Paul has been teaching us here in Romans 8. Um, so without further ado, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up into Romans 8, 31 and 32. I will give you all a second. I'll go ahead and read it. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So I want y'all to go ahead and start like marinating yourself in this passage um, or in these verses. So um, go ahead and just turn to the person next to you. We have some questions I just want you to answer off the top of your head as you've just read this verse. Um, what are some ways that you might underestimate what is being said here? Um, or what are some ways that we might take this verse out of context? All right, so. Sorry, I'm going to cut you off. So tell me, where, where is your head at? What are, um, what are some ways that you underestimate what's being said here? Yes, Anna. Exactly. Anyone else? Yes, Alex. <laughs> Right, because, and this is like, this passage itself, it's um, the beginning of Paul's crescendo. <laughs> like, um, I don't know if any of you have ever, raise your hand like high and proud if you've ever watched The Lord of the Rings. Okay, oh, yeah, I can see this. And so, 
in the return of the king, right, Aragorn is on the is on the line and he's speaking to his men as people are encroaching from all sides and he looks at them and he says, it is not this day that we die. And I think of that when I read this entire passage of Paul with great faith encouraging us and empowering us and reminding us of the hope that we have. If you were to Google encouraging Bible verses, this would be on every list that you would click on. Um, This is, right, this is the hope that we hold on to, that God is for us. But as encouraging and as hopeful as this is to some of us, this should be just as sobering to others. What then shall we say to these things? A yet another rhetorical question has just been asked here. A rhetorical question that demands a response. Paul forces us by asking a rhetorical question to join him in saying something about this. If you've ever had a conversation with Rob for longer than a few minutes, you know that he is like the best at asking these open-ended rhetorical questions. So Paul is now doing this to us. He has insisted that we make the point. What then shall we say to these things? He is including you along with him to make a point. He has just spent, we see here in Romans 8, we have drudged through here all semester, that he has spent his heart, all his energy trying to help us understand the gospel, help us think a certain way, help us to respond in a certain way. And so now he has said here, he wants us to render a verdict. God has rendered his verdict, so what will ours be? What are we going to say? What are you going to say? What then shall we say to these things? He answers and says, God is for us. Um, In what ways is God for us? Popcorn around the room and just say, in what ways that you believe that God is for you? Or what ways has, has he been for you before? What have you experienced that you know that your God is for you? He provides for you. Comfort. God being for us means that the verdict he has already rendered in justification stands as a perfect guarantee of vindication in the judgment. I'll say that again, and if you're taking notes, I encourage you to write that down. God being for us means that the verdict he has already rendered in justification stands as a perfect guarantee of vindication in the judgment. So what this means is that Jesus stands as a perfect guarantee in the courtroom. That means that Jesus stands as he covers you, he marks you as a perfect guarantee in judgment. For what things? What things? What things is Paul talking about here? What shall we say to these things? All of Romans 8? Maybe. Probably. But definitely um, from 26 up until this point. And I'll read it for you. And if you're with me, you can look back and read along. 
Verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So to answer what we say to these things, then we have to ask the question, who is this for? Who is the us? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, if God being for us means that the verdict he has already rendered in justification stands as a perfect guarantee of vindication in judgment, who is us? It's, it's the us of verse 208, the ones that love God. It's the us of all the preceding verses look, coming up into here. If you look back and see, that's the us. That is who God is for. God is for the us in these verses in a way that he is not for everybody. God is for the us in these verses in a way that he is not for everybody. Someone um, read or recite, if you can, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What does this show? Right? This shows that God is for the world in John 3.16. That whoever believes in him. Who is whoever? Whoever is the world. Anyone. Anyone who might believe. This offer is for anyone. But then when you put these two verses beside each other, you see that God is not for the world and for the elect in the same way. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, His Son died, for whoever would believe. This was for all the world. If you would believe, merely believe, trust Him, and you will have everlasting life. This offer is for the world, but it doesn't stop there. Have you moved from believing to finding yourself here in Romans 8? Loving God, foreknown, justified, called. Do you see yourself as the us in these verses? Have you started exercising what you say you believe? This is, John 3, 16 is like the entryway verse, right, into Christianity. It's probably one of the first verses you read in that you have known since you've been marked as a Christian. What are, just uh, for fun, I want you all to just like shout out who like some of your favorite bands or artists are. Like you like love this band, you know all their songs. 
Right, so if Anna is like a Taylor Swift fan, like she, she like, she knows her songs, like she knows her stuff. <laughs> and I were to be talking to Anna about Taylor Swift and she were to mention that, that you, yeah, you're a Taylor Swift fan. And I would say, yeah, well, well, me too, I love Taylor Swift. Perfect, and so we start talking about her and her songs, but then all of a sudden, I realize I only really know like one of her songs. What's Anna gonna say? Right? Because you, you know all of these things about her, you know all of her songs, but I only really know like 22, maybe. I know. It is like the entryway song into knowing her Anna, Anna knows Taylor Swift because she listens to her music. She follows her online. She, Anna's like, yes, yes, yes. But right, like to get there, she had to move from just knowing the entryway song to where she is now. And so, if for the elect, God establishes us, secures us, justifies us, calls us. If that is what God does for the us of these verses, then who can be against us? Nobody. And it's natural if you may be thinking, well, that's just not true, because claiming that no one can be against the Christian makes no sense. Yes, both human and spiritual forces war against us. We will face opposition. And many verses warn us of just that. Second Timothy 3.12 states, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But this verse does not say that nothing can ever overcome a Christian. No, Christians can still lose. We lose our jobs. We lose all things as it relates to life, our loved ones. We lose at sports. If you're a Gamecock, you know that to be true. Sometimes we even lose our lives, but losing isn't a matter of not having enough faith or not trusting God enough. This verse makes no claim that everything will work out in this life if we have faith. Who or what do you most often feel is against you? And why? Yourself? How about you pair up really quick and talk about this question? So who? Who, who do you feel or what do you feel is against you? Mm. 
What's a good word? Someone else. My professors. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe one more. Jobs, like your career, mm. your boss, your coworkers, yeah. coworkers, etc. Yeah. So, of any of those things that you named, do they have the power to stop the perfect guarantee? Who, of any consequence, can be? Against us. No one. And I feel like we don't take it, we think like, oh, we won't have any hardship, is what mm. that means. Like, oh, because if someone is against us, then that means like bad things are constantly happening to us. So if the Lord is saying, like, or, you know, the writer is saying, like, oh, no one's against us, like, we could be against us. That's more like an eternal perspective, I mm -hmm. feel like. Yeah. Versus like the daily hardships, like you said, like, first Timothy. Second Timothy. Second Timothy. What was like basically straight up just say like yes, if you are believer, you will have hardships. Right. I think we have this like fairy tale idea that like Christians don't struggle, mm. or we shouldn't struggle if we're like, if we're doing everything right, then we shouldn't struggle. Does that take yeah. sense? Yeah. Or like portrayed us at least when I was like growing up, it's like oh well, if I'm doing everything right, I shouldn't be struggling. But to hear it just like portrayed in the Word of God so clearly that like. Right. Right. Can anyone in this room testify that the Christian life is a fairy tale life? <laughs> like, absolutely not. But right, like, we do face hardship. There are things against us, but not eternally. Like. Do you think that Paul, who we know was very persecuted, has had a lapse of memory when he wrote this? Paul, who has just been lashed 39 times, five times. That he had been beaten with rods three times. That he had been thrown in prison so many times that he can't even remember how many times it was. Of course, he didn't forget that when he wrote this. What he means is no one can successfully be against us. Yeah. Yeah, like scripture describes these hardships as light and momentary, and I don't think it's described that way to like invalidate the struggles that we'll face, but it's a reminder to like frame those struggles in the perspective of eternity, and it's comforting to know that like even the most difficult thing like all of us have gone through, like compared to the eternity that we'll share with our Father, like it is light and it's momentary. Right. Amen. And so if it is what y'all have just said, because pain is real, hardship is real, y'all, we can testify to that. This life is not easy. But rather, in a cosmic courtroom, no evidence can be held against us. That is what Paul is saying here. That God is in the process of sanctifying us. Those who trust in Christ can no longer be condemned. No evidence can be held against you. You see, I grew up having such a minimal understanding of salvation. 
And I knew I was missing something because anytime I found myself in this figurative courtroom, I had so much doubt, even though I merely believed, right? Even though I did the John 316, I kept finding myself asking this question, is God actually for me here? Right, the biggest person against myself was myself. I spent so much time fixated on the judgment of God. I would squirm at the thought of his presence. I would allow myself to wonder if he loves me. I would see myself as unworthy of his care. I would work to measure up in his sight. I thought he acted more favorably to me when I was obedient than when I sinned. I would beat myself up every time I failed. I would envy the worthiness of the person next to me as if he or she was more accepted by God because he or she was more spiritually mature than me. I would run from God in fear as I thought of the empirical evidence of remaining sin that I gave every day. Do you see yourself in any of those? Is that as heavy for you as it was for me? Right, the fixated on God's judgment, dreading the thought of being in his presence. Is God actually for me here? It wasn't until I moved from this holy discontent and started the journey of sanctification, right? The transition that Rob so beautifully took us through last week that changed my posture in the courtroom. When I finally started moving from holy discontent to the deep work of preparation in my heart to then reorienting my life around holy patterns that enable me to live and operate in God's presence. It was then that I knew when I stood before God that he knew me. When I woke up in the morning in the courtroom, I knew that he vouched for me. I knew that he said, no, I know her. Because I knew that I was justified. No. I moved from running from God in fear to meditating on the absolute perfect in completeness of the work of Jesus Christ. I knew that I was found perfect in God's eyes because of the perfect righteousness that Jesus had attributed to my spiritual account. It was like having an eyewitness, right? in the courtroom and Jesus says no she's covered by my blood those transitions didn't come easy Rob talked about that last week and that's hard work y'all but if you saw the list of the things that I felt when I entered the courtroom then I encourage you to ask yourself where are you here? <laughs> right? What's your next transition?
I want you to all close your eyes for a moment. What is your verdict? Put yourself in a courtroom. You're on the stand. What are your fighting words? What do you plea? Is your life right now, as you sit in this room, found marked by the blood of Jesus? Is Jesus vouching for you? Is there any evidence found against you? Can you confidently stand in the courtroom and know that the judge is for you? You can open your eyes. About six or seven years ago, my sister and I got in a really, really bad wreck. And I won't go into the details of it, but my sister, Kristen, was at fault. She turned left at what she thought was a four-way stop. It was a three-way stop. She turned left in front of a car going 60 miles per hour. The car hit my side. It was worse than bad, to say the least, and the fact that we got out with some bruises and a broken collarbone was absolute providence. Well, needless to say, if she wanted to keep her license or not get um, a lot of points, she had a court date to go to. And she went. And she walked in scared, unsure of what to do, what to even say. And the policeman that was on scene at the wreck was there and was talking to her before they went in. And he asked her, do you know what you're going to plea? And she looked at him, panicked, and said, but I'm guilty. I was at fault. What else do I plea? And he said, in a court of law, you always plead not guilty if you have the chance. You never know when you could find favor. Kristen proceeded into the courtroom, still scared, still shaky. She waited her turn until her name was called up. And she took the stand. And the judge read through a few things. And then he asked her, Kristen, what do you plead? Kristen looked at the judge. She looked at my mom. She looked over at the policeman. She took a deep breath and she pled not guilty. And the judge was silent. He looked around. He looked down at some papers. He then looked up and locked eyes with Kristen and said, Kristen, there has been no evidence found against you. Verdict, not guilty. You are free to go. You see, the car that she hit, they didn't show up to court. There is no evidence in this courtroom found against her. The judge could not find evidence against her. 
Paul continues on here in verse 32 and says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What he's doing here by asking another rhetorical question is once again making us make the point. And that then has challenged the way that we live and think about life through the lens of the gospel. Right? Like with this in the forefront of our mind. With Jesus as the perfect guarantee. How will he also... How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I want you to think about this. Let's say, you know, many of you have gone on some spring break mission trips with us. Um, let's say we go on one this coming spring, which we will, and I hope a lot of you join us for that. So we, we announce the trip. You sign up, which that seems to be like the hardest thing for y'all to do for some reason. <laughs> we sign up. You pay the amount. You pay the $250 or however much it is. The trip gets closer, you're excited. We're telling you what we're gonna do. You pack your bags. We then all pile into big old church vans and we caravan to wherever we're going. And it's a long trip. Rob's running a lot of red lights. And we finally get there. You're so excited to get out of the car. You're so excited to finally be there. But let's say we're in a city. And we're staying in a city. And we have to pay to park our vans. What do you think we're going to do? We're going to... Why would we not pay to park the vans? We have... 20-something of you here with us. You have paid to go on this trip. You have then traveled miles and miles and miles and miles and hours and hours and hours and hours. Do you think we're going to turn around and go back because we have to pay to park the vans? <laughs> like, that's silly to think about, right? And that's what Paul's saying here. This is the lesser thing that you're worried about. John Chrysostom said, If he gave his son, and not merely gave him, but gave him to death, why doubt any more about the rest, since thou hast the master? What he's saying is, it would be inconceivable for the lesser to be left unfulfilled. What are some of the things that God will give us because he has also given us Christ? Are there things you feel you need that sometimes seem more important than what God has already given you in Christ? Talk about these things with the people around you. All right, I'm going to bring y'all back in, and we're going to wrap up here in a second. But So what are some of the things? Talk to me about those things.
Right. That's good. Someone else. about this side over here? Did you have your hand raised? I think there a lot of the things that God will give us tend to not necessarily be on the physical side. But I think in other passages, it always talks about how God will supply our needs. Hmm. And some of our needs are physical. So like food, water, you need those things. But other things that we kind of feel like we need, like we want to be around friends. We want to have a relationship. We want to have security and money and monetary value. But those aren't things that we can guarantee. Yeah. And what we need, we have a basic needs, and then we have God, and those were, He will give us our needs, and He will be there. That's all we need. Yeah. And that will be a lifelong fight, right? To want God's things more than our things. It sounds like we've got some work to do. We've all got work to do. No matter where we are. The work didn't stop in John 3.16 for me. And it doesn't stop here either. I've got work to do. Because every single day, I will wake up in the courtroom. You will wake up in the courtroom. So I encourage you, keep rendering your verdict. Keep fighting for that. As McKenna talks about so often, preach yourself the gospel every day. There's power in that statement. You've got to wake up and stand in that courtroom with confidence and say, who could be against me? Because my God is victorious. And if you haven't yet rendered your verdict, you're stuck. And you've got some work to do too.
if you still see yourself on that list, right, of fear of fear, of continuously doubting that God is for you, then I, I want to have a conversation with you. Rob wants to have a conversation with you. Anyone in this room would want to have a conversation with you about, right, like what that work looks like. It's hard work. It has not come easy. But I pray that you work for that harder than anything else. That you start practicing that and exercising what you say that you believe harder than anything else. I had a cross-country coach one time who would say all the time that champions are made but no one is watching. And that has stuck with me for years and years and years and years and years. And in the same way, I feel like God has asked me, right, are you holy when no one is watching? Are you honorable when no one is watching? Are you putting in the work just in this building? Right, are you getting in the word for the sake of knowing God's heart? Are you wanting God's things? Are you joining with others to fight together for something different? So I ask you, what is your posture in the courtroom today? Are you fixated on the judgment of God? Or do you know that the judge is for you? Have you rendered your verdict? Let me pray for us. Father, we humbly come before you. Lord, so aware of ourselves, of our sins, of the things that we do that we hate, that we do them. It causes us to drag our feet into this building every week. But Lord, we recognize that you that your word is good and that your word is true. And that if your word is true, if you are for us, Lord, we do not have to drag our feet. We do not have to stay fixated on your judgment. Lord, we know that your son, the Lord Christ Jesus, stands as a perfect guarantee for us in judgment. So Lord, I pray that you would lift our heads high, that our shoulders would come back, humbly confident, knowing that you are for us, knowing that there is no evidence found against us. Lord, I pray for the people in this room, Lord, that they would start to begin to see themselves as the us in these verses, that when they wake up tomorrow morning, and they're in the courtroom again, and they're all in the stand with everything against them, with themselves against them, with their sins against them. Lord, I pray that they dig down deep and ask themselves where they are. Where do they want to be? Can they say confidently, I know my God is for me. I know his promises are true. Lord, I pray that as we go out from here, 
and into the world and into normal life things and into things that seem mundane or exciting. Lord, that we would start to fight for something better with the people around us. Lord, that we would start having these conversations. Lord, that you would give us the courage and the confidence to ask our friend, ask the person sitting beside us, so where are you? Where do you want to be? Lord, we love you, and we thank you, and we praise you for your goodness and your holiness. Lord, you, don't, you do not need us. You do not need us to sing your praises, but you want us. Lord, you want us here to come before you. You want to be with us. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your power. I thank you for sending your son that we have the option to have a different posture in the courtroom. I pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.